I'm Tom Donnelly, Senior Fellow for Constitutional Studies at the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. Jeffrey Rosen is away this week. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. This week, we explore the off-overlooked clause of the Constitution, the Takings Clause, which concludes the Fifth Amendment. It reads, nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. On March 20th, the Supreme Court will hear oral arguments in Murr versus Wisconsin, an important takings case. Joining me to discuss the best arguments in the Murr case and the broader history and meaning of the takings clause are two of America's leading experts on takings and property rights. John Echevarria is professor of law at Vermont Law School, where he teaches property, public law, and a wide range of environmental and natural resource law courses. He also filed an amicus brief in this case on behalf of the state of Wisconsin. David Bremer is senior attorney in the property rights practice group at the Pacific Legal Foundation, where he is heavily involved in litigation in state and federal courts. That litigation includes the Murr case, in which the Pacific Legal Foundation is representing the Murr family. John, Dave, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. We're glad to be here. Okay, well, so we'll get to the specifics of Murr versus State of Wisconsin in a little bit, but I'd like to start just with a beat on the text history and purpose of the takings clause itself. Uh, Dave, let's start with you. Please talk just a little bit about the text of the clause and, and also the framers' vision for this particular provision. What sort of evils was the clause uh, meant to address? Well, as you mentioned, the, the, the takings clause has uh, essentially three parts. It, it says the government may not take property. There's one part. Unless it's for a public use, there's a second part. Uh, and without... Uh, and there must be compensation. There could be no taking for public use without compensation. So the evils that the clause was in, intended to address was on the same evils that the Bill of Rights as a whole was intended to address. That's an overreaching government that um, behaves as if its ends justify the means and that, and that when it find some public good or public problem that needs to be addressed or some public good it, needs, it wants to provide, it just decides that it's going to um, take the resources necessary to do that uh, from property owners in this case without, uh, without complying what most people consider basic fairness, and that's paying for what, for what you take. Uh, and, and that's the basic idea uh, behind the takings clause. Thanks for that, Dave. And 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 so before turning to the to the facts of uh, the Merck case, uh, John, do you have any friendly addenda to what Dave uh, Dave's account of the text, history, and purpose of the clause itself? Well, the the Constitution obviously reflects a balance, and it includes the Bill of Rights and the takings clause is an important part of the Bill of Rights. But it, but the Constitution also starts with the phrase "We the people," and then proceeds to establish a democratic form of government. Uh, and there's a, a balance between the government's ability to function and uh, rights under the takings clause. Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes said many years ago that government could hardly go on if the public had to pay every single time it regulated the use of property. Um, originally, I think most scholars recognize that the takings clause was intended to deal with direct governmental appropriations, say, 
of slaves. Madison was very concerned about the possibility that the new federal government would take property owners' interest in their slaves or permanent physical occupations of private property by the government. It was only in, in the early um, part of the 20th century the Supreme Court first said that regulatory restrictions on the use of power, police power regulations, can also rise to the level uh, of a taking. Um, and the disputed area in, in regulatory takings doctrine is, is how far does that idea go? Um, most people think that, uh, and the courts have generally held, that regulations ordinarily do not result in a taking. But um, um, where that line is is a matter of continuing dispute. Excellent. Thanks so much for placing that, that some of those issues on the table. I'm sure we will explore them as we get into Murr itself. Um, so let, let, let's actually turn to that. Let's turn to some background information on the major takings case between this, before the Supreme Court this term, Murr versus State of Wisconsin. I'd like to begin by asking you both about the facts of this case and also a bit about the legal framework involved. So for the average listener, some of the legal issues in this case may feel a bit technical. So I'd like to set out some of the basics before turning to the arguments, uh, the best arguments on each side of this interesting and important case. Um, but let's turn first to the facts. Um, and I know that in takings cases, a great deal can often turn on how the court characterizes the facts of a given case. So I'm going to give each of you a chance to give your respective accounts. Uh, but John, why don't you kick us off? Okay, well, this is a, a seemingly small little case with, with potentially important implications. Uh, it arises from a dispute about a, a proposed development along the banks of the lower St. Croix River, which is the boundary between the states of Minnesota and Wisconsin. Um, in 1972, the governors of the two states applied to the Secretary of the Interior and said, this is such a wonderful recreational and scenic resource that it ought to be included in the National Wild and Scenic River System. And the Secretary of the Interior granted that request. Uh, the state of Minnesota, and most importantly for our purposes, the state of Wisconsin then followed through and adopted legislation to regulate development along the riverbank. Um, and the state set up standards governing development and then delegated to local governments. Uh, in this case, we're talking about St. Croix County, the responsibility for adopting and implementing zoning regulations uh, governing development uh, along the riverbank. Um, and without getting into a lot of the details, the basic uh, feature that's important to us is that the St. Croix zoning ordinance includes a minimum lot size requirement of one acre. Uh, more or less for development along the river corridor, corridor. Now, the regulations recognize, like every zoning ordinance does, that there are going to be, and there were when the zoning ordinance was in place, some pre-existing lots uh, that did not meet the minimum lot size requirement, that were too small to meet the minimum lot size requirement. These are so-called substandard lots. And um, St. Croix County, like most zoning authorities, recognize that when a new zoning ordinance is put in place and there's substandard lots, as a matter of fairness, uh, in order to avoid uh, preventing people from making any economic use of their property, owners of a substandard lot should be permitted to go forward uh, and build on the, on the property. However, this exception is itself subject to an exception, and that's really the, the, nut, the, the guts of this case, and that is the zoning ordinance provides that when two adjacent uh, substandard lots fall into common ownership, uh, the owner must, in effect, treat the lots as one, that they are, so to speak, merged, um, and the owner would be permitted to build only one structure uh, on the two merged lots. So this story begins um, 
when the actually the plaintiff's parents bought this property uh, back in the 1960s um, along the Lower St. Croix River. They bought one small sub um, substandard lot, um, and um, three years later they bought a second lot uh, next door to that. Uh, and over the ensuing years, the family used the two lots together as a as a summer retreat. Um, early on, the family uh, the parents bought the first lot. Uh, conveyed it to the family plumbing company, uh, but later it, they conveyed uh, the plumbing company conveyed it back to them, uh, and so um, the property was held in common uh, ownership uh, by the parents, and therefore the lots merged under the zoning ordinance. Um, so that was, they say, at that point legally under the county zoning ordinance there was a merger. So then uh, more time passes, and in the 1990s, the parents convey the lots to, their two, to, their, to all of their children. Uh, in other words, the lots remain in common ownership, and the zoning, the merger provision continues to apply. Now, this is a very long story. Ten years later, uh, the children begin to explore the option of further development of their property, only to discover, apparently to their surprise and for the first time, um, that the two lots had been merged as a matter of law as a result uh, of the parents uh, bringing the two lots into common ownership. Uh, and therefore, uh, although the children wanted to build a second home on the property, they were prohibited from doing so. Under the zoning, they could tear down the existing cabin and build a new one. They could keep their existing cabin and remodel it. But what they couldn't do is build two uh, homes, two houses on the two adjacent substandard lots. Um, the children then sued in the Wisconsin courts, saying that they'd suffered a taking of their private property. Um, that claim uh, failed at each step in the Wisconsin courts. Uh, and now this U.S. Supreme Court has granted certiorari, uh, and um, the case will be argued on Monday. Um, their basic argument is that this lot merger provision so severely restricts the use of their property um, that it amounts to a taking. And the more specifically stated uh, issue before the Supreme Court is whether in assessing the economic burden that this lot merger provision imposes uh, on the, the children, the plaintiffs, is whether the court should focus on the one lot um, that uh, they cannot now develop or whether the court should look at the two lots, the lot in which they have a home and the one in which they wish to build a second home. Um, the um, uh, because the plaintiffs certainly can make a valuable economic use of one of the two lots, if you consider the two lots together, they will have a very difficult time succeeding in their takings claim. On the other hand, if, as PLF argues, the proper focus is on the one uh, lot on which a house does not yet exist, um, then they would have a greater chance of likelihood. So this case revolves around the proper application of the so-called parcel as a whole rule. Well, thank you so much for that, John. There, there's a lot to obviously chew on there. Uh, but turning to you, Dave, you know, did, did John get the facts right here? Uh, do you have any friendly or even not so friendly uh, addenda to the account he just provided? Well, he got a lot of it was fairly stated, but there's one very critical fact that is incorrect. And that is that the MERS have always owned and still own two separately divided lots of record that have never been merged. They, there's a merger process in Wisconsin. No one went through that merger process in order to create, you can go through a merger process. That's a process whereby if you have two lots, you want to 
um, join them together and use them and, and develop them and, as, as, and sell them as one property. There's a process for doing that. No one ever went through that process. The ordinance under the, at issue here did not merge the Murr family's two separately divided and deeded lots. It simply restricted the use of those lots. What the ordinance at issue here says is that if you own two adjacent lots, you cannot sell or develop the lots separately. It doesn't merge them. It doesn't change the boundary lines. These lots were taxed as separate units. Since the MERS bought them in the 60s, they bought them separately for separate purposes. They bought it for an investment reason and later, as many Americans want to do, gave one of the lots to their children, thinking they could sell it or develop it. And they, and they were flabbergasted when they found out that the county was saying that because you own another lot, you can't use your vacant investment lot. If someone else had owned that vacant investment lot, though, the county agreed that it could be sold or developed. There's enough room on it. It's grandfathered as a physical matter. It's, it's plenty of room to develop. So the question that's before the Supreme Court in this Murr case is whether the courts, the government, is going to be required to treat two separate lots as one unit, and John mentioned this, when deciding whether a land use regulation has stripped the property of so much um, economic value and use that it rises to the level of an unfair, unconstitutional taking. And our position, the MERS position, is that since these lots have always been two lots and remain two lots and aren't merged, that um, denying the, the ability to sell or develop a separate lot, um, that lot has to be looked at as its own piece of property. And the, the regulation that burdens that lot is judged or whether it's a taking, just looking at that one piece of property, you don't add up all the property owners' other holdings before you ask the question whether they've suffered an economic impact that causes a taking. So uh, that's the only clarification I would add. Excellent. Thank you so much for that, Dave. And I mean, I, th I think it'd be useful for our listeners to, 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 to put some of the uh, common vocabulary that are, that are seen on both sides um, on the table up front before digging into some of the nuances of, uh, of the legal arguments. Um, and I think to do that, you know, turning to the, 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 the top of your organization's brief, Dave, the Pacific Legal Foundations, um, this is how, how you describe the legal issue in the case. Um, you say, uh, in a regulatory taking case, uh, does the parcel as a whole concept, as described in Penn Central Transportation Company versus City of New York, establish a rule that two legally distinct but commonly owned contiguous parcels must be combined for takings analysis purposes? Now, now that's, that's a real mouthful. Um, and for those among our, our listeners who aren't takings law nerds, uh, can you unpack that sentence for us? Uh, what is a regulatory taking? Uh, what did the court say in Penn Central? And then what is the parcel uh, uh, as a whole concept? Sure. I'll try to keep this real simple. We have to step back and, 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 and ask the question, when does a taking occur? And what the Supreme Court has said is that uh, an unconstitutional taking of your property can occur not only when the government physically invades it, like takes it for a road, 
that's a taking, but also when it imposes regulations on your property that are so onerous that they strip the property of all economic use and value, or when um, there may be some use left, but the totality of the circumstances show that your property has been burdened so much by regulation that it's really proper and fair to treat the regulation as a taking of your property, not as police power regulation. Okay, so that's the background. But in order to to apply that test, in other words, to, in order to, to figure out how much economic harm a property owner has suffered by regulation, you have to first identify what property are we talking about. Let's say you own 10 acres and the government regulates five as open space and maybe you can use the other five for something else. The question you would have to ask in that situation is, well, do you look at just the regulated five areas that are restricted or do you look at the whole 10 acres before you decide whether the property owner has been um, denied enough economic use to cause a taking. So in this case, and, th and that would be the parcel as a whole, by the way, that looking at the big whole, um, uh, it, the big whole property would traditionally under Penn Central would potentially be considered the parcel as a whole. Um, but really, um, that the question that we're putting to the court is, well, what is the parcel as a whole in a situation where you have two separately divided lots, is the parcel as a whole that you look at to decide a taking, is that the, the one lot that's separately divided or is it both separately divided lots? Uh, and it makes a big difference in how the takings issue will come out because if you look at all property owners' holdings, for instance, the Murrs own two hot lots and one has a cabin. Well, then you can't say that they've been denied all economic use because um, they have a cabin. But if you look at each lot as its own piece of property and you say, well, has this regulated one lot been denied all use? Well, it's a lot easier to say that. So whether a property owner gets compensated for regulation depends in some cases on how big a property slice you're going to look at before you ask if there's a taking. I hope that makes sense. Well, thank you so much for that, Dave. Now, now, John, please feel free to respond to anything Dave just said about the legal background there. Um, and in addition to that, what sort of clues do we get uh, from Supreme Court case laws to how to answer this this vexing question of what property counts for this regulatory takings analysis? Well, the the Supreme Court precedent and, and common sense um, tells you you can't divide up property based on these kinds of legal divisions. Um, the um, what the Pacific Legal Foundation is basically arguing is if there's a 100-acre parcel and the developer subdivides it into 100 different lots and there's a floodplain on one of the lots or it's a steep slope or it's a wetland on one of the lots, then even though the developer gets to develop 99% of the property, 99 of the 100 lots, if there's one lot um, that's restricted, then the Pacific Legal Foundation wants to say, well, the government's got to pay for that. It only affects one hundredth of the property, but nonetheless, that's a taking. Pacific Legal Foundation brought a very important case in the Supreme Court called Palazzolo versus Rhode Island, which involved a couple of dozen uh, acres of, of coastal marsh in Rhode Island. It was subdivided into a couple of 30, 40 different lots. But at the time, the Pacific Legal Foundation never thought it was appropriate to argue that 
each individual lot was the appropriate unit for measuring the economic impact, and they could claim a taking of any of those individual lots. So, so the argument that the Pacific Legal Foundation is making is really a pretty radical departure from existing law, and it would greatly expand the scope of the takings clause, and as Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes said, make it much more difficult for the government to to regulate. I want to just say about in the Murr case, uh, it's important to understand how how these lot merger provisions, which which are not by any means unique to to the state of Wisconsin or the Lower Saint Croix River, these are these are pervasive around the country, and they've been part of zoning regulations really since the advent of zoning about a hundred years ago. Um, and the idea is that yes, if somebody has a substandard lot, and unless they're allowed leniency, unless they're allowed to to in effect violate the zoning ordinance, say the minimum lot size requirement, they won't be able to get any ec economic use of the property. So an exception is granted for them. But but the but the lot merger idea is that if a land if a citizen voluntarily acquires two adjacent substandard lots, so that when they're when they're done acquiring these two lots, they have a conforming lot, then the zoning regulations across the country say, well, in that circumstance, then the owner of these two adjacent substandard lots has to comply with the same minimum lot size requirements that everybody else uh, that's subject to the zoning regulation uh, has to has to comply with. So this is a very sensible provision. It's very fair. No court in the history of the United States of America has ever held that a lot merger provision results in a constitutional taking. So if, if the Pacific Legal Foundation were to pull a rabbit out of the hat and persuade the Supreme Court that there's a taking in this instance, the high court would be the first court in the nation to ever so rule. Well, thank you for that, John. Dave, I'd, I'd love to hear, uh, you know, what you have to, uh, your response to to John's sort of character, characterization of Pacific Legal Foundation's uh, position. Um, and, you know, also just the, and, and we see this in, in some of also the amicus briefs uh, submitted on behalf of Wisconsin, this idea that, um, you know, giving giving uh, owners flexibility in, in, in the way in which um, uh, Murr suggests in this case may lead to a certain amount of gamesmanship where they can subdivide lots in, in, in certain ways that can get uh, past government regulations, sort of what John said there, but it's certainly prevalent in the other briefs. So a response to both of those trains of argument. Okay, absolutely. Well, again, let me start out by on the facts and make sure we understand and get a picture of in our head of what kind of property we're talking about in the Murr case. Again, these are two separately divided lots. They have different meets and bounds. They're transferable by different deeds and, in fact, have been transferred back and forth between family members for the very reason that they're separate pieces of property. The MERS could give this lot away, we'll call um, the, the lot, uh, the vacant lot, the, the, the second lot. It could, they could give the second lot away. They can transfer it. They're, they've paid taxes on it, and it's still got the same lot lines it's had since 1963 when it was divided. Lot lines and meets and bounds are very important in property in the United States. Everybody looks, when you buy property, to, at the boundaries to see what kind of property you have and so that you can um, make decisions. Banks do it. Real estate, everybody looks. That's why we have beats and bounds and, and plaques and surveys so we can record different pieces of property. 
Now, having said that, our argument is that because these have always been separate pieces of property under Wisconsin state law, they should be treated as separate pieces of property for constitutional takings purposes. But more specifically, our, our argument is this. It's not a per se automatic rule that there's that any time you have a subdivided lot that's next to other subdivided lots, that it must always be treated as its own unit for a taking, but that the presumption, it should be presumed that when a separate lot is taxed and deeded separately, that it should be presumed that that is its own piece of property when you ask if there's a taking. Now, the government, and John will be happy to know, can overcome that presumption by showing, for instance, that the two lots or three or four lots have always been used together. For instance, when a big developer it may divide a whole bunch of lots, but it makes an entire development based on all those lots, and there, there's a unity of use that might overcome the presumption that each separate lot out of the hundreds that John's talking about is its own property. So we're asking actually for... Um, nothing like a radical departure. We're actually asking the court to simply recognize what ordinary Americans and the government itself recognizes every day, that platted and, and deeded and taxed separately property is its own piece of property, and that combining it um, with other property just because an owner happens to own another lot is unfair and, and, and basically allows, you were speaking of gamesmanship, the threat here is that the government will gain the system so where typically if it denied me all use of my one lot and I only own one lot, it'd have to pay me compensation. But what Wisconsin is saying here and, and what would be allowed in this case at the MERS lot is that, well, we, we're not going to pay you compensation because um, the fact that you own another lot makes up for the fact that we took all use of your your um, your second lot. So. We would compensate um, Joe if he owned a lot, but since you own two, you don't get compensation. That's really unfair, and that would be a radical departure from um, the, the, the purposes of the taking clause. Thanks for that, Dave. So, so John, if if the if PLF's uh, proposed rule here isn't the right one, uh, what, what rule would you propose the the court adopt in this context? And related to that, what role should um, state law play in helping to to shape? Uh, what counts as, as as a piece of property for the regulatory takings analysis here? Well, the, the, the relevant parcel uh, for the purposes of deciding this case has got to be the two lots, uh, lots E and lots F, the, the two lots together. Um, and, um, you know, PLF is playing a kind of a three-card Monty game where they're saying, you know, we can't develop one lot. Well, they can't develop one lot because they have permission and they have uh, the adjacent lot and they can develop the other lot. And of course, if it were turned around and they couldn't, and they wanted to develop the, the first lot, they'd say, well, you know, that we're, we're being denied the opportunity to develop it. But the fact is they're only being denied the opportunity to develop because they can develop the other lot. Um, so these, these regulations, uh, the lot merger provision applies to only when adjacent lots are owned uh, in common ownership, and a person has the opportunity um, to develop one of the lots. There's no gamesmanship here. The, the lot merger provisions are on the books. They've been on the books in this case for 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 years. The the Murr parents, whether or not they got good legal advice, I don't know, but they're presumed to know the law. And the law was that if you choose, the government doesn't make you do this. If you choose to combine the lots 
so that you now have a lot that, that, that conforms with the zoning, just like all your neighbors, uh, then you have to comply with the zoning, uh, just like all the neighbors. You know, it's important to emphasize that this is very valuable property we're talking about along the lower St. Croix River. And partly it's very valuable property because it's very beautiful property, but it's also because it's strictly protected and strictly regulated. Um, the county and the state, with the encouragement of the federal government, have made a big effort, and landowners along the river have made a big effort to protect the scenic and recreational beauty of this. And part of the way in which they've done that is by limiting the development along the river. And what the MERS are saying is we, we want a, and, and we want a special exception. We want to be able to build not just on one substandard lot, but on two substandard lots. We want to make more intensive development of our land than anybody else in a way that's, that produces more congestion, that, that will detract from the scenic beauty of the river in the way that no one else is permitted to do, those who have conforming lots. So, so it would be unfair if they were allowed to use the takings clause to force the government uh, to allow them to build uh, not one, but two structures uh, that don't comply with the zoning ordinance. And, and any response to that argument, Dave? Well, only this, the, it's a, the Murr family, which has owned this, the, the two properties, the two lots since the 1960s, remember, they bought one lot, the first lot, with a small cabin on it. Three years later, they bought the adjacent lot that was vacant so they could keep it for investment purposes and someday um, give it to their kids. And, and that's what they did. And they don't want to develop something big. They don't want to build anything at all. What they really want to do is sell the vacant adjacent lot so they can get some money to fix up their old cabin and continue to have family reunions there. But they can't sell they're separately divided in a separate tax lot that they separately bought 50, 60 years ago. And and that, if someone else owned it that wasn't in the Murr family, they could they could sell it. It could be sold and it could be built on. It's grandfathered in as a building lot. It's only because the Murrs happened to own the cabin next door and the other lot that the county said, sorry, you can't sell that other lot. Um, you just have to keep it as a, sort of a remnant land for your other lot and 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 be happy with that because you have a cabin and, and the MERS are um, understandably um, frustrated by that because those lots all around them are sold and used as residential lots, but they can't do that because they happen to own the one next door. And they're saying, you've taken our lot for a public use. You want it to be open space. You need to pay us. And the, the way you decide in court whether we should be paid is if you've denied us all the ability to use all or a lot of the use or our ability to sell a fundamental right of our single lot. And it doesn't matter that we have another lot that we bought separately. Excellent. So, you know, the, I, I, I guess a, a key question going into oral argument is, you know, who we, we, at, at this point it's going to be an eight-justice court hearing the case. Um, you know, John, who, looking to this case, who do you see as some of the, the, the key justices to watch at oral argument? Well, well, my hope is that the, is that the court will say this is a, involves the application of a longstanding, pervasive, essentially administrative rule to ensure the fairness uh, zoning regulations. You know, this is a, a, a the lot merger idea is something that's been around for a long time. 
It reflects a very common sense judgment about how to balance the interests of property owners uh, and, the, and the interest of other property owners in seeing um, the strict uh, enforcement of the zoning uh, regulations. Uh, and as I say, and, and Dave has not contradicted me, the, there have been many other instances around the country where takings claims have been filed based on this kind of provision, uh, and no court uh, has ever uh, held it to be a taking. Um, so I, I'm hoping that the Supreme Court will say, you know, this is a matter of, of local government law. This is a, a an approach to zoning regulation that is time tested, that has been worked out very carefully at the local level. And, and we have no business using the takings clause to come in here and Bigfoot local government and come in and and uh, basically contradict the, the judgment uh, of local communities about how to administer their zoning. So I'd love to see a unanimous decision from the court affirming um, the decision of the Wisconsin um, Supreme Court and I, the Wisconsin, excuse me, the Wisconsin Court of Appeals, and I think that's a a likely outcome. So Dave, you're 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 obviously uh, your team is getting ready for you know oral argument next week. Um, you know who are who are some of the, the the key justices that you're you're looking at in this case and. You know, again, the, the, we're 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 dealing with an eight justice court. Um, how much will the the absence of Justice Scalia sort of affect the course of the argument and 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 perhaps the outcome of the case? But I just ask it because Justice Scalia has been such an important voice um, uh, in the realm of, of of property rights and takings uh, for decades. Well, I, you know, we're confident in our in our position, regardless of of, of who is on the court. And so I'm not really going to speculate about which justices might have what positions. Um, again, our, our, our case is, is asking the court to adopt a pretty um, moderate position that when you have two separate pieces of property, that they're presumed to be separate pieces of property um, for deciding whether a taking and the, the the next question, whether there actually is a taking, is not before the court. That's something for um, the courts to decide on remand after they know which piece of property do they look at. And if they look at them separately, the court will have to, to apply all the takings considerations to that one piece of property. And, and, then, and then decide and we'll litigate whether that's a taking. And I, I think that's a, a, a position that... Um, it should be palatable and hopefully is palatable to, to all the justices. And it won't, it's not a per se takings argument that all that merger ordinances are always going to cause taking and may cause a taking. Sometimes they may, may not cause a taking. Um, the takings analysis requires consideration of a lot of circumstances. And unless you know the specifics of the property and the law, um, you can't really decide whether it's a taking. And, and it's not a position that every merger ordinance is going to cause a taking particularly when there's not a merger ordinance at issue in this case. This is a denial of the ability to sell a development ordinance. Um, so, but again, you have to know the particular situation. So we're asking for um, a balanced rule that respects traditional property lines while it gives the government an opportunity to overcome those property lines in situations, say, where you have a developer that uses 100 um, lots as one um, overarching development scheme um, and uses that property as one, then it would be treated as one because it was clearly used that way from the start. But where they're not used that way, 
they need to be presumed to be separate. And then we'll decide um, whether the taking once that's uh, decided. Just to give you an idea of, of how silly it would be uh, for the court to uh, fail to recognize that the two lots should be viewed as one, the, the appraisal evidence in this case indicates that if you look at the value of the two lots and, and each one could be developed versus the value of the two lots with only one house on it, um, the one house option has re results in a 10% reduction in the market value of the property. Uh, a 10% diminution in the value of property is is is, is never by any court uh, been regarded as the kind of effect on a private property interest that could rise to the level of a taking. On the other hand, if you do what Pacific Legal Foundation wants to do and you ignore the fact that a house can be built uh, on one of the lots and you just focus myopically on on lot E, well then you know the difference in value between lot E with a permission to build a house on it and no permission to build a house on it is enormous. So, so, you know, there's nothing, there's not a whole lot left to debate and there won't be a whole lot left to debate in a whole a lot of other cases. If the Pacific legal foundation prevails in this case and we're able to, to, to persuade the court to, uh, to rely on individual lots, um, some of which are very ancient, uh, some of which may have been uh, created in a very irresponsible and casual way uh, as the way in which we define uh, what the unit of property is. And so, John, if, if you were you know, arguing this case on Monday and one of the justices asked you very crisply, what is the rule that they should apply in this context to identify the property? Um, how, how would you would articulate that in, in, in a couple of sentences? Well, well, the the relevant property is is the is the contiguous holding um, that the MERS own, uh, which is subject to a lot merger regulation uh, that gives them permission to build on one of these substandard lots. But given that they have voluntarily merged that lot with a second lot, denies them the opportunity to build a second substandard structure. So, I mean, if if we're thinking about the the Mer case in the context of the the Roberts Court's takings legacy as a whole, um, Dave, what 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 sort of what what is the what is the uh, uh, how would you characterize what the Roberts Court has done, you know, in the takings realm so far, and where this that this case sort of fits into that constellation of cases? Sure. Well, you know, the Roberts Court hasn't really. Um, dealt with a lot of regulatory takings cases or land use regulatory takings cases, I should say, and um, in which we're dealing with an, a law that restricts your ability to develop or use your property and what are the proper rules um, for whether um, a restriction is a taking. That kind of case really hasn't come up uh, too much. So I think we're going to learn something about uh, where the Roberts Court is on, on regulatory takings from this case, and uh, it, it may be relatively limited, but you never know. So um, we'll, we'll just have to wait and see. I, I don't think there will be radical shifts um, in regulatory takings law, but as John points out, this case is going to refine one area of the law and um, it will have practical consequences for whether you will find more or less takings probably in some cases, or excuse me, there'll be more likelihood of a taking, um, but it won't change the basic idea that if you prohibit um, too much use of property that there's going to be a taking. 
uh, ironically, I think the government would be in a better position if, if the late um, great Justice Antonin Scalia were still on the court, because I think more clearly than, than any um, sitting justice today, he recognized um, that um, lots like this should be recognized uh, as one parcel. In the Penn Central case, uh, one of the interesting features of the regulation was that the development rights from the Grand Central Terminal that was subject to the historic uh, protection designation uh, could be transferred to neighboring lots. And as Justice Scalia wrote in a, in a subsequent opinion, it's appropriate to, to, it was appropriate in that case to view the lot on which the Grand Central Terminal sat and adjacent lots to which development rights could be transferred um, as one unit of property for the purposes of takings analysis. And that's um, really the the uh, the closest analogy in, in Supreme Court precedent to, to the case we have in Murr. Um, when the government is, is regulating uh, two adjacent properties in a coordinated fashion uh, in order to allow some uh, significant use of the property, but to restrict uh, one of the uh, one of the one of the uh, uh, legal lots, uh, it makes all the sense of the world, as the Supreme Court recognized in Penn Central, and as Justice Scalia recognized, to treat them as a unit. Dave, what what do you make of that that characterization of of precedent, and also just of of uh, you know Justice Scalia's approach to analogous issues? Well, I I think that's probably not uh, when I'm looking at Penn Central. That's not I think the first thing that strikes you about. Um, the relevance of that case to the Murr case. And Penn Central, as um, your listeners might remember, Penn Central deals with the Penn Central Grand, State, um, Grand Central Station in in, uh, in New York. And, and um, Penn Central wanted to uh, build a high-rise above the terminal, the train terminal. And when they couldn't, when they were denied the ability to do that, they said that was a taking. And the Supreme Court said, well, no, we're not going to separate your air rights your air development rights from the development you already have below the train station and all and the related um, office building. We're not going to separate your air rights. That's we look at the whole parcel as a whole. Well, the parcel as a whole that they were looking at was the fee simple state of that lot where Grand Central Station is. And all we're asking the court to do is do the same thing here with the MERS. They're not asking to separate their air rights or their view rights or to split out one little um, postage corner of their lot as a separate takings parcel. They're saying this is the whole, look at the whole thing like you did in, in Penn Central. The whole thing is this one lot. Um, and Scalia, for his part, also said another interesting thing about this issue in the Lucas case out of South Carolina in 1992. He, he looked back at Penn Central and he said, well, it was really an extreme and unsupportable rule would be to, to say that the you have to look at all the property a property owner owns when deciding if there's taking rather than just the fee simple estate where the action is happening. And, and, and again, that's what we're saying in this case. You shouldn't add the MERS other holdings when you decide that the taking of their separate vacant lot has occurred. Thanks for that, Dave. And, so, John, you know, we've, we've talked about some of the, you know, legal nuances of this case and uh, some of the related precedent. But just to, to back up to the big picture for a second, um, you know, wh why should our average listener care about this case? What are, what are the practical stakes um, of uh, a, a win or a loss for the state of Wisconsin and St. Croix County? 
Well, that, that uh, effective, uh, consistently applied uh, regulatory protections are essential to the preservation of private property rights and, and uh, the environment uh, and important community values. Uh, and um, the more expansive the interpretation of the takings clause gets, uh, and unfortunately, from my point of view, over the last 20 or 30 years, an increasingly conservative Supreme Court um, aided and abetted by groups like the Pacific Legal Foundation and, and other proper, private property rights advocates has adopted an increasingly expansive view of the takings clause. Uh, and that uh, if the go local governments in particular and state governments are under a constant threat of uh, unanticipated financial liability uh, for taking regulatory action, uh, it creates a chilling effect uh, and makes it more difficult to, to gov for government to act uh, for the benefit of property owners and for the benefit of the community. Um, and, and, you know, in this particular case, um, if the, uh, if the takings claim prevailed, uh, the protections, um, that were, um, fought, uh, many, so many fought to create for the, for the St. Croix river, uh, would be undermined. Um, so, um, you know, the, the, you could, one could say, uh, and property rights advocates say that all, Claimants seek is compensation for the government in exchange for imposing the regulation. Um, but as Justice, uh, going back again to Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, if the government has to pay, uh, it cannot function. It cannot regulate. And so that's the that's the cost of uh, embracing. Uh, that would be the cost of embracing extreme claims such as this one. So, Dave, same question to you, big picture. Um, I think we have something of a sense of what's at stake for the MERS in particular because of your, uh, um, you know, great uh, uh, framing uh, uh, of the case's facts. Uh, but sort of what are the practical stakes uh, for property owners uh, nationwide in the, in the outcome of this case? Well, if the, if the MERS prevail in their, um, for property owners, who buy multiple parcels. It's not uncommon uh, for families to buy one parcel that has a home or something, and they buy another nearby um, property for many different reasons, a lot of times for investment or to give the family later on, or maybe they're going to build a second home for the family or, or whatever. Um, all it would mean is that, um, that they're going to get fairness, that, that if you're taxed, separately on your property. The government treats it as a separate lot and it's physically buildable or, or sellable, independently sellable as these lots here. Nobody denies that, um, that but for this ordinance that this lot could be built on. It's got a half acre or, and it could be sold. Um, but property owners will just have their, will have their, um, their investments, um, are recognized the same investment that the states recognized in it. They won't lose it. Um, they won't lose their property lines, in essence, um, just so the government can get out of uh, paying a few bucks in compensation. There's not going to be takings everywhere. There never is. Um, the argument always is that if you find a taking, that regulation will cease. It never does. Regulation gets broader and broader. There's more and more. Every American knows it, that, uh, particularly with property, that you need permits for everything you do. There's more restrictions. And... Um, and it's and many of those, most of those, aren't taking. But if the government goes too far, as Justice Holmes said in the same case, John Clerk, if government goes too far, we have to recognize that a oppressive land use restriction is is really a covert 
of taking a property, and it's only fair and just to pay the property owner when the public decides, for instance, that it wants to have a piece of property stay as open space or natural natural space for the public good. And um, and, and that's what's uh, happening here. And, and so we just want the court to look at property that's been treated as property as property. I just want to emphasize that that if this if the county is allowed to enforce its zoning ordinance and its lot merger provision, the the MERS will be allowed to make the same intensive use of the property that they own that owners up and down the river with similarly sized properties will are allowed to make of their property. What what enforcing the lot merger provision does is it achieves equality of treatment among landowners. It doesn't discriminate against the MERS. It'll, it simply denies them a special exemption from the rules that apply to everybody else. So if, if equality is the principle we're trying to enforce here, then then upholding the lot merger provision is the way to go. Thanks, John. And so, so Dave, certainly I'd, I'd love to give you a chance to respond to that if you'd like, but I'd also just like to, to look ahead a bit. Um, you know, next week, much of the legal world's going to turn to the Supreme Court confirmation hearings of uh, Judge Neil Gorsuch. Um, you know, if, 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 we're, if we're projecting ahead 5, 10, 15 years and we have a nine-justice court again, um, you know, what are, some of the, uh, what are some of the legal issues in the takings realm that are on the horizon, uh, extending beyond the Murr case? Well, um, this is Dave. I, one of the takings issues that I don't know if it's on the horizon or it's just looming above like a dark cloud is, uh, is um, the process of pursuing for taking whether a property owner is going to have uh, the same rights as other citizens to sue for a constitutional violation in, in federal court, um, which were created to protect citizens from lo local bias. But at the current time, property owners can't file a taking claim in federal court. Um, they, have to, they have to go to their, their local courts only, uh, and, uh, and they're singled out that way uh, among all classes of constitutional plaintiffs, only property owners are subject to this weird rule. So I think that's a looming um, issue that it's been around for a long time, and I don't think it's going to go away. Um, whether the new court takes it up, I don't know, but I can assure you that there are going to be requests that it do so to decide can property owners have equal access to the courts. And so, John, same question to you. A lot of people are going to be thinking about the future of the court uh, next week and in the weeks ahead. Uh, what major issues do you see uh, looming on the horizon in the takings realm? Well, I don't, I don't know what it, what's in the PLF playbook, but um, I, I have some hope based on the public reports and, and some of the opinions of, of um, uh, Judge Gorsuch that I've read um, he seems to take a, a skeptical view of the role of the federal courts uh, and thinks that they are have taken too large a role uh, in trying to govern our society, if you will, uh, and, uh, and in particular in interfering with um, state and local government authorities. And he seems to take the view that the Constitution uh, should be read with a with a respect for our system of federalism um, and um, if he, if taking that point of view seriously, uh, that supports, in my mind, a restrained reading of the takings clause, uh, one that leaves uh, judgments uh, about a, how to balance the interests of different property owners, uh, interests of property owners in the community 
um, to the wisdom of local communities and the local democratic process uh, and to not insist on having the federal courts referee every local zoning dispute. Um, so we'll, we'll see. Um, uh, I don't think a conservative viewpoint, and J Judge Gorsuch is undoubtedly a conservative jurist, uh, necessarily means and, and may well not mean um, that he would be an enthusiastic uh, supporter of an expansion uh, of takings doctrine. Thanks so much for that, John, and, and, and thanks so much to both of you for a terrific discussion here. Um, it's time to wrap up with closing arguments, and I'm just going to ask you both the same simple question. Uh, beginning with you, John, uh, why should your side win in the, in the Merck case? Because the lot merger provision applied in this case, uh, which is a, a pervasive feature of, of local zoning ordinances and uh, it's the kind of ordinance that, that's been uh, used around the country for almost 100 years, is, is eminently sensible and fair. Uh, and slicing through all the, the legal uh, technicalities, uh, the, the eminent fairness uh, of this law uh, should prevail in the Supreme Court and lead to an affirmance of the judgment of the Wisconsin Court of Appeals. Thanks for that, John. Uh, John. And uh, so, Dave, the, the final word goes to you. Uh, why should your side win in the, the Murr case? Well, because it's eminently unfair to, to uh, force the Murrs by an ordinance to um, treat their separately taxed, separately divided, separately bought lot that their kids want to use or sell as um, just a, an appendage of another piece of property that they can do nothing with. Um, and, and, and that's, that's the, the bottom line common sense fairness aspect from the, their point of view is they just want what they've always had. They want, in, when they go to the courts, they just want their property to be treated like it's a piece of property the same way the state has treated under under its background rules and not have it all of a sudden um, just combined with other properties simply because the government wants to avoid being charged with a taking. And, um, and then we'll go from there, and, and they just want their day in court with their property properly defined. Thanks for that. John Echevarria, Dave Bremer, thanks so much for a really terrific conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Today's show was engineered by Jason Gregory and produced by Nicandro Iannacci. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich. The host of We the People is Jeffrey Rosen. Continue today's conversation on Facebook and Twitter using at ConstitutionCTR. Sign up to receive Constitution Weekly, our email roundup of constitutional news and debate at bit.ly backslash Constitution Weekly. Please subscribe to We the People and our companion podcast live at America's Town Hall on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. We the People is a member of Slate's Panoply Network. Check out the full roster of podcasts at panoply.fm. And finally, despite our congressional charter, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support, and we rely on the generosity of people around the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional debate and education. Please consider becoming a member to support our work, including this podcast. Visit constitutioncenter.org to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Tom Donnelly.